All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead morning to Psalm chapter 42. Psalm chapter 42. My wife and I have been excited to come and be here with you this morning, and uh, so we have been, it's a little, a little warmer. We, we flew straight here from my in-law's house in northern Wisconsin, so um, the snow is fun to go and visit for a period of time, you know, but uh, it's always, it's nice to leave it behind too, so, um, so we, were, we were glad to get out here. And uh, we've been looking forward to being with you today. Before we get into the text of Scripture this morning, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Okay, Jesus tells us in John chapter 15 and verse 5 that without me you can do nothing. And so we understand that we need his help as we dig into the text of Scripture this morning. So let's pray, ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll go ahead and look at this passage of Scripture together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to spend time in your word today. And uh, thank you for, for the singing, uh, thank you for the Scripture reading. Uh, just for the opportunity to lift up and praise and exalt your name. And we pray now that if the text of scripture is open, that you would help me to rightly divide the word of truth. We want to be faithful to the text of scripture. We want to explain what it means, and then we want to take that and apply it to our lives. We know that every time that the word of God is opened, you're holding up a mirror in front of us and showing us things that need to be changed and need to be adjusted. And I pray that you would help us to walk out this morning more changed and, and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ than we were when we came in. We give you the honor and glory for that because you truly are the one that deserves it. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Have you ever felt like God is a million miles away? Like you pray and your prayers don't get higher than the ceiling. Like there's radio silence between you and God Almighty. There's a man, his name was Horatio Spafford. He knew, a little bit, he knew a little bit about this. He was a successful attorney and a real estate investor that lost a fortune in the great Chicago fire of 1871. And around that same time, he had a four-year-old son who died of scarlet fever. So he felt like his family needed a vacation, and so he sent his wife and his four daughters ahead on a ship to travel to England. He stayed behind to work through some business. He had some things that he needed to finish up, and then he was going to go and meet them. As his wife and daughters were sailing across the Atlantic, there was a collision that happened, and the ship sunk. And there was over 200 people that lost their lives, including Horatio Spafford's four daughters. His wife survived the trip, made it to England, and she sent a telegram home to her husband, and it said, saved alone, what should I do? And Horatio immediately got on a boat and started sailing for England. And as they were sailing, the captain of the boat knew what had happened to his daughters. And so as they passed over the spot where the ship had sunk, he called Horatio onto the deck, brought him over, and said, this is where it happened. And I can't, I can't imagine, like, the emotions. I can't imagine the pain, like, what was going through his head at that moment. I don't, I don't know. I can't wrap my head around that. But the psalm that we're going to look at this morning, Psalm chapter 42, is written for that kind of a situation. It's a psalm for dark days. It's a psalm for individuals who feel as though their God has forgotten them. So I don't, I don't know what your situation is this morning. And I don't know exactly what you're going through this morning. But I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to challenge you to engage with the words of the psalmist this morning. Because we know that in this text, the psalmist promises us that we can hope in God even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Now, you might say this morning, well, I'm good. Like, everything's going well. I don't have any problems. Like, things are rolling. We're in good shape. 
James chapter 1, tell, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer this morning, but James chapter 1 does tell us, right? Uh, it, he tells us that um, uh, in, in James 1, he says, uh, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He doesn't say if you fall into various trials. He says when you fall into various trials. This psalm is necessary. It's needed for all of us at some point in our life. And my guess is that if you have a little bit of life experience, you can identify with where the psalmist is at this morning. Now, let me give you a quick overview of this psalm. The psalms were written as the hymnal of ancient Israel. So they were meant to be sung. And this psalm is actually constructed like a song. There's two verses and a chorus. So if you actually look, verse 1 is found in verses 1 through 4. And I've entitled that the psalmist regret. Verse 2 of the hymn, we see that in verses 6 through 10. And I've entitled that the psalmist resolve. And then there's a chorus. And you see the chorus repeated twice in the psalm, in verse 5 and then again in verse 11. So there's two verses, just like the hymns we just sung. There's two verses, and there's a chorus. And we're going to look at each of these in turn. So let's look at verse number one. Let's look at the psalmist's regret. What, what is the psalmist regretting in this verse? This first verse is, is, it's, it takes us to a dark place. Okay, so I'm just going to prepare you for that ahead of time. All right, let's look at what he says in verse one. The first regret that we see is we see the regret of desperation. The psalmist is desperate. Look at what he says. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now, this picture is of a deer dying of thirst in the desert. Now, there's that song, As the Deer. And I don't know what it was. When we sang that when I was a kid, like in youth group, I always had this picture in my head of like this idyllic, you know, desert oasis, like there's a deer, like next to this really nice lake, maybe surrounded by some mountains. Like that was the picture I kind of had in my head. As I studied this out, that's not the picture here. Okay, so in Israel, uh, during the wet season, you would have snow that would melt, and there would be mountain runoff that would come down, and there were these creek beds that would fill up full of water. But then during the dry season, all of that water would evaporate, and basically what would be left was a muddy trickle. And so the psalmist says here, he's like a deer in the middle of the wilderness. There was once flowing water, and now he's going around looking for it. And it was there at one point, and now it's not there anymore. And he's dying of thirst, and he's looking for some kind of relief. And and not only can he not find it, but this is an ongoing condition. He says, as the deer pants, my soul is longing for you, O God. He's looking and saying there was fellowship at one point, and now I don't feel like there is, and I don't see any end in sight. This is a desperate, this is a desperate verse that's written. But not only do we see the regret of desperation, we see the regret of remoteness in verse 2. What does he say in verse 2? Well, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When, when shall I come and appear before God? So the, the psalmist here is empty. He's looking for God, and yet he feels like God is nowhere to be found. It's almost like an individual who is in exile. He wants an appearance before the king. He wants an appearance before God, and yet there is, there, there's not an opportunity for him. He feels as though he is separated from God and unable to come into his presence. feels like there is no access to God. So you have the regret of desperation. You have the regret of remoteness. In verse 3, I think you see the regret of oppression. You see the regret of oppression. Look, the, the psalmist says he has some enemies here. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. 
So he said, like, literally, I've, I've been crying all day and all night, and my tears are the only things that are sustaining me. Well, they continually, who's the they? Well, his, his opponents, his opposition. Well, they say continually to me, where is thy God? So he is seeking, he's striving to find this, this relationship with God. It was there at one time, and now it's, it's not. And he's, he's looking around and he's asking God, God, why can't I come into your presence? And then there's people who are looking at him and going, man, where is, where is your God? Like, didn't you commune with him at one point and now did he just leave you? And he's feeling, the, he's feeling the pain from that. He's feeling the doubt from that. There's a struggle. There's a struggle here. And then finally, in verse 4, we see that there's the regret of isolation. There's the regret of isolation. The psalmist had friends that he used to worship with, and now that's no longer an opportunity for some reason. Look at what he says in verse 4. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with the multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. So the author is, is pained here because he's unable for some reason to worship together with his fellow Israelites. Like, they're coming together to worship God, and he's not. He's left outside for some reason. Now, I think we all got a little bit of, sense, of a sense of this uh, in COVID, right? Uh, and the first, time, the first time I actually preached this message was, was, after, was after COVID, so it was still pretty raw. Uh, but if you remember, like, meeting on Zoom was not the same as being in person. And there was times where you could sit behind your computer screen and yes, like, you're around people, but it's not the same, right? We long to be with people, and there's something special about coming and worshiping together and lifting our voices together and opening God's word together and studying it and enjoying that fellowship as a body of Christ. And here, the psalmist says, look, I want to be worshiping with my brothers, and for some reason, he's unable to. He's alone. He's isolated. This is his regret. This is his struggle. There's a, a, a special time, a precious time, but now he's alone. So verse 1 of this hymn, I, it takes us to a pretty, a pretty dark place. Because this psalmist, he's desperate for a word from the Lord. He's removed from a place of close communion with God. He's oppressed by his enemies, and then he's isolated from his fellow worshipers, from his, his brothers in the faith. So the question then becomes, can God actually work in a situation like this one? Okay, is this, is this the reality of his situation, or are these his emotions? Can God come in, and can God work in a situation when we feel this way? When we feel helpless, and when we feel hopeless? And I think the answer is yes. Because what we see in verse 2, when we see the psalmist resolve, we see the psalmist start to recalibrate. Let's go ahead and take a look at this together. Okay, in verse 2, let's look at the psalmist resolve. Now. His struggle doesn't go away, okay? So it's not like, this isn't a romantic comedy, right? So it's not like, it's not like all the bad stuff just disappears and, and we live happily ever after. He still has, he still has a struggle here. Verse 2 is kind of constructed like an Oreo cookie, okay? So he has, he has, he talks about his problem, okay, on two sides, but then his resolve is really sandwiched in the middle. So in verses 6 and 7, he talks about his internal struggle. In verses 9 and 10, he talks about his external struggle, but then sandwiched in the middle, we see him start to recalibrate his faith. But let's look at the struggle first. Okay, so we have a powerful, we have a powerful struggle. And we need to recognize that. We need to acknowledge that. Okay, the Christian life is not all rainbows and unicorns. Okay, there are real struggles and trials that come in the Christian life. 
Okay, so let's look at this together. Notice the internal conversation that he has in verses 6 and 7. He says, oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember you from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mizar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and your billows have gone over me. So when I look at these verses, I see that the psalm, he's struggling with depression here because he says, my soul is cast down. Okay? He's struggling with doubt. He's struggling with depression. He looks around and goes, this is not what I thought I was getting. And then we also see that he feels crushed underneath the weight of his current situation where he says, all thy waves and thy billows have gone over me. That's like the picture of a waterfall. So it's like somebody that is, is underneath a waterfall and the pressure is continually coming down on them and they're being crushed underneath the water. Okay, that's, that's the picture here. So he has an internal struggle and then he has an external struggle because he has enemies that keep poking at him. Look at what he says in verse 9. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? In verse 10, as with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me. Well, they say to me all the day long, where is thy God? And can I tell you, this is a struggle for us sometimes because we live in a wicked and a sinful world and they look at the church and ask the question, is there a God that still works? And you and I have a tendency to look inside sometimes, we look at the world and we look at the culture around us and we ask the same question. Does God still work in the wicked world in which we live? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. God is still at work, and God is still saving people, and God is still changing lives, and God is still growing and advancing his church today. Okay, let's look at verse 8. Okay, in verse 8, we see we have a powerful struggle, yes. But in verse 8, we see that we have a present Savior. And this, this is where the psalmist really starts to recalibrate his focus. He acknowledges his struggle, and it's real. Struggle's real. Okay, but this is where he really starts to recalibrate his focus and to bring himself back to a position of faith. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with thee, a prayer to the God of my life. I want you to notice, first of all, in this verse, God's presence is constant. God's presence is constant. In verse 9, the psalmist asks, God, why have you forgotten me? Now, does God ever forget his children? No. Does God ever forget those who are his? No. So why does the psalmist ask the question, God, why have you forgotten me? This is an exaggeration. Okay, the psalmist comes out, he, he's struggling. He's coming from a place of pain. And people in pain often make statements that they otherwise wouldn't make. Okay, so this is an emotional reaction. The psalmist is struggling. There's a problem that's here, and it comes out, and he says, God, have you forgotten me? In the book of Job, it's interesting, Job chapter 6, Job makes some statements, and his friends rebuke him. And Job, a man who is clearly in pain, in chapter 6 and verse 26, he said, do you he's talking to his friends, he said, do you intend to rebuke my words and the speeches of a desperate one, which are as wind? And so Job sometimes says, listen, people in pain, they sometimes make statements, they're words for the wind. Okay, they just need to be said and then let go and blown away. And this is the psalmist here. He's in pain, he's struggling, and he says, God, have you forgotten me? But then he comes back to verse 8, and we start to see his faith be recalibrated. 
God never forgets his children and he's always in control. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 tells us, let your, con- your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a good promise for us to remember. Okay, God is in control and his presence is constant with his children. In verse 8, when he says the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and in the night, his song will be with me. There's never a time where God forgets his children. And here the psalmist recognizes in the day and in the night, the Lord has got me. The Lord's got me. His presence is constant. He never forgets. He never abandons his children. Secondly, we see that God's character is steadfast. God's character is steadfast. And we see that because of the word in this verse that he uses, and it's the word loving kindness. And that word loving kindness in the Hebrew, the word is hesed, but this is, this is covenant language. If you remember the story in Genesis chapter 15, okay, God and, Abraham have, God and Abraham have a conversation. And in Genesis chapter 12, God has come to Abraham and he's given him these promises. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. You're going to have lots of children. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay, and then Abraham makes a couple of mistakes, right? Like he goes to Egypt and tells his wife to tell the Pharaoh that, you know, she's his sister. So Abraham has a lapse of faith. God comes back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, and he reaffirms these promises to Abraham, and he makes a covenant. And what happens is, if you remember the story, God has Abraham prepare the covenant. And what they would do is, they would take these animals, they would cut them in half, and they would make a walkway. And then the two individuals who were making promises together, they would walk through that pathway of carcasses and basically saying, if either one of us breaks these promises, what's done to these animals is going to be done to us. Okay, like that's a pretty serious, pretty serious promise. The closest thing that we have to covenant uh, agreements today would be in the marriage relationship when we take vows one to another. And so God has Abraham prepare the covenant walkway. And then God puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And God walks through that covenant pathway alone. And that means that the promises that God made to Abraham were not dependent on Abraham at all. God is going to keep his promises to Abraham because his promises are rooted in his own person and character. It's not rooted in Abraham. It's rooted in God. And in his character and in his person. So when God entered this relationship with his people, God bound himself to act toward them in certain ways. And God is utterly faithful to keep his promises. God will always keep the promises that he makes to his people. His character is unchanging. This word loving kindness, it's a word that highlights God's loyalty. It highlights his faithfulness, his commitment, and his enduring love for his people. And it's entirely dependent on his grace and his character alone. And when the psalmist looks at this, yes, he's got issues. Yes, he's got struggles and they're real. But when he comes back to a position of faith and he makes the resolve and he says, I'm going to remember the character and I'm going to remember the promises of God. And his presence is is constant. And he will do what he has promised what he has said he will do. Okay, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night, his song shall be with me. Okay, God's, uh, God's um, presence is constant and God's character is steadfast. So we've seen the psalmist kind of work through his struggle in verse 1. 
we see him working hard to align, realign his perspective in verse 2. He's reminded of and he focuses on the character of God. But then the question becomes, so what, what is he supposed to do? Right? What is he supposed to do? And this is where we get to the chorus. And in the chorus, we see the psalmist's resolution. Now, this is repeated twice in this psalm, in verse 5 and in verse 11. We're going to focus primarily on verse 11. Okay, but let's look at the psalmist's resolution here in verse 11. It says this. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. So what is this verse supposed to teach us? Okay, let me point out four things. First of all, there is a doubting of hope. <laughs> there is a doubting of hope. Look at what he says at the start of the verse. Why are you cast down? <laughs> Why are you disquieted within me? Okay, this is an individual. His emotions are deceiving him. His emotions are leading him to a place of doubt. His emotions are leading him to a place of depression. And he asks himself the question, why are you cast down? When it says that word there, disquieted, why are you disquieted within me? The idea here is that his own heart is murmuring, discouraging words against itself. Have you ever had that happen? Like you're there and you kind of have a moment of self-doubt and like you start, like you start listening to yourself. And all of a sudden, we start having this internal conversation, and it's like, ooh, I know I'm supposed to do that. Can I actually do that? Uh, I don't, uh, man, I don't know. Mm, uh, mm, uh, right? And we start having this conversation with ourselves. And this is what the psalmist says. He says, listen, my emotions are leading me away from the truth. And look, my own heart is talking against me. It's leading me to a bad place. He's doubting hope. But then we see that there is an enabling of hope. We see that there is an enabling of hope. Now, we got to talk grammar for a second, okay? So for those of you who are not English fans, all right, I apologize. But we got we to talk about it. As I, was studying, as I was studying through this psalm, this for me was a light bulb moment, uh, and it really just kind of helped bring this psalm to life. When you think about the struggle that the psalmist is going through here, and when you think about the struggle that you and I go through as well in our own lives, when we're commanded, and this is a command, when it says hope in God, it's an imperative, it's a command. Doesn't that feel like, uh, like it's really hard to do? So we look at this and we say, man, we're going through all this struggle and I'm commanded to hope? Like, really? But we see that this hoping is God-enabled. The way that this verb is constructed, okay, that the object and the subject are working together to make the verb happen. If you're like, dude, English is not my thing. Okay, let me try to explain so this is a command. So what's the subject of this sentence? Hope in God. Okay, the subject is actually you. It's an understood you because it's a command. It's like if I looked at Jeff and I said, I pointed at him and I said, go get me a cup of coffee. Okay, now we understand the subject. I'm pointing at Jeff. The subject is Jeff, right? You go get me a cup of coffee. The same thing. He says, hope in God. You, each of us, hope in God. So you are, you is the subject. You are the subject. That's good English. All right, you is the subject here. Okay, now what's the object? What are we supposed to hope in? Hope in God, okay? We're still awake, right? What's, what's, the, what's the object? Hope in God. Okay, good. All right, so the subject, you, and the object, God, are working together to make the verb happen. What's the command? Hope. So this hoping 
is not all up to you. This whole thing is God-enabled. As you and I fight to have hope in God, what this text is telling me that God works in us to help make that hope a reality. God doesn't just leave us in this situation and say, hey, hope, make it happen. No, God says you fight to have hope and I will work in you to bring that hope about. You say, do we see this principle anywhere else in scripture? We actually do. All right, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So who here has the responsibility to work? You and I. We have the responsibility to put some spiritual sweat equity into our lives. We, we need to show that our faith is genuine. You come back tonight, we'll talk about that. Okay, but we have the responsibility to show that the grace that God has enabled us with when we were saved is still working out in our lives. We have to work out our own salvation. But are you and I solely responsible for that? No, look what he says in verse 13. For it is who? God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So listen, you and I work in our spiritual life. And yes, we have to get out. We have to spend time in the text of Scripture. Yes, we're to build relationships and try to reach people with the gospel. Yes, we need to put our arms around people and say, follow me as I follow Christ and disciple them. That requires some spiritual sweat. But as we do that, it's not us that's making it happen. It is God who is working in us to willing to do of his good pleasure. He is the one that enables it, and he is the one that makes it happen. In Psalm 42, he tells us, hope in God, but understand that as you and I fight and struggle, God is coming alongside of us, and he is helping to make that hope a reality. We are not in this alone. God is working for us and in us and then through us. This hoping is God-enabled. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, where Paul tells the church in Philippi, he says, um, Oh man, now I'm drawing, now I'm drawing a blank. Oh, he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God is always with us. God is always working. And he's working in us and then through us to bring his will about. And you and I can hope in God because God enables it to be so. Let's look third at the character of hope. Now this, we need to ask a question here. And the question is, okay, so we know that God works in us to bring this hope about. But then the question we need to ask is, well, what does that hope actually look like? What does that hope actually look like? And this is the, the character of hope. Now, normally, we use hope as a desire for something good in the future. It's expressing some kind of a level of uncertainty. Like, for instance, in our house, making coffee is my responsibility. All right, so my wife and I, we, we, like drinking, we like drinking good coffee, and so we have an espresso machine at our, at our house. Now, my wife knows how to use the espresso machine. My wife doesn't often use the espresso machine, okay? So that's, that's my responsibility. She likes to come out and sit in her chair and have me bring espresso, you know, her espresso drink to her, which I'm happy to do, okay? But hope in the sense that we use it would be for me to say, I hope my wife brings me a coffee. Very uncertain, okay? Uh, we, we don't know if that's actually going to happen or not. 
But biblically, that's not the type of hope that we see in Scripture. Okay? Biblical hope is different because it's not rooted in uncertainty, but instead it's grounded in the character of God himself. It's a confident expectation, and it's a desire for something good in the future. To just put it really simply, okay, hope is this. Hope is faith for the future. So when we talk about faith, when I define faith for kids, it's really simple. Faith is taking God at his word and acting upon it. Okay? So that's in the present tense. I'm going to believe what God has said. I'm going to believe what God has told me. And then I'm going to act based on what God has said. Hope is me saying, okay, I know what God has promised in the future. And if I believe in God's character, if I believe what he said in his word, and I believe that God is good to do what he says that he will do, I'm going to act in a way today that aligns with what he said in his word. It's faith, but it's not faith for the present. It's faith for the future. Okay, that's biblical hope. Hope in scripture, it's Joshua and the nation of Israel marching around the walls of Jericho. And on the seventh day after they marched around the walls, Joshua said, shout for the Lord has given you the city and the walls of Jericho fell down. That's hope. Did they have any idea that the walls were actually going to come down? No, they did it based on what God had said. They had hope. Hope is Jonathan saying to his armor bearer, come and let us go over. It may be that the Lord will work for us for there's no restraint to the Lord to say by many or by few. And then Joshua and his armor bearer go up and they overthrow a whole garrison of Philistine soldiers. Hope is Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego saying to Nebuchadnezzar, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thy hand. And then they walked with the son of God in the midst of the furnace. Hope is Paul telling Timothy, I know who I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Hope is men like Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, who said, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. Hope recognizes and internalizes the reality that there's coming a day when we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That's biblical hope. It's not uncertain. It's rooted and grounded in the very character of God himself. So when God's word says hope in God, it doesn't mean cross your fingers. It means, to use the words of the missionary William Carey, to expect great things from God. And as you and I fight to have that kind of hope, even in the midst of difficult situations, we can be confident that God is working in us to bring that hope about. It's God-enabled. Now let's look finally at the outworking of hope. In verse 11 here, he says, For I shall yet praise him, the health of my countenance and my God. So when he finally hopes, what happens? Well, where first there was confusion and where first there was despair, now there is praise. Okay, it's a complete 180. Now, this is, it's a little bit of a bittersweet conclusion. Because now the psalmist is resting in the reality of God's character. He's engaging in this God-enabled hope. But the reality of a situation hasn't changed. Like, he has, like he, he's fighting for faith. He is hoping in God. But when he walks out the door, his situation is still the same. Like, that hasn't magically changed. 
So we see the psalmist still enduring the pain and the loneliness and the separation. So how can he praise God? I think the simple answer is that his focus has now been recalibrated. Instead of his focusing on himself and his focusing on his situation, now his focus has shifted and it's been placed on his God. And when you and I get our focus off of ourselves, and we hope in God and we recalibrate and we put our focus back on God himself, okay, that's when you and I can truly have hope. That's when you and I truly walk in faith. So if I were to boil this psalm down to one big idea, okay, it'd be this. Believers have to fight for hope in God, even in the midst of difficulty and trial. Hope in God is not an option. It's a command. And you and I, we must fight for hope in God, even in the midst of difficulty and trials. Now the question becomes, I mean, I don't don't know about you, but the question for me becomes, okay, so what? Like, so how are we supposed to go and live this out? James chapter 1 and verse 22 tells us that we need to be hearers of the word and not, or I'm sorry, doers of the word and not just hearers of it. So if you're in the midst of a difficult situation this morning, this might all sound well and good. And you say, okay, yes, I need to hope in God. How? How do you do this? When you walk out the back door and you go and get in your car and the reality of your situation begins to settle in again, how can you fight for hope in this way? Let me give you three, let me give you three simple suggestions, and then I'll be done. The first thing that we need to do is we need to prioritize the truth over our feelings. We need to prioritize the truth over our feelings. It's interesting. If you look in verse 8, the psalmist says, The Lord commands his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song will be with me. Okay? So he recognizes. The Lord is with us. He recognizes that the Lord's presence is constant. Look in verse 7. Even when he's talking about his struggle, he says, All your waves and all your billows have gone over me. Listen, even in the midst of this difficulty, the psalmist never loses track of whose waves and whose billows they actually are. Okay? They're God's. God is the one who is control. God is the one who is sovereign. This is why he says in verse 19, I will say to God my rock. The psalmist is trusting in the immovability and in the character and in the steadfastness of God. Even when the storms of life threaten to capsize us, we can always run to the rock. And the psalmist here says, listen, I can prioritize truth. I know how I feel. But sometimes how we feel is not actually reality. And what we need to do is we need to go back to the word. And we need to run back to God. And we need to allow the truth of God to govern our feelings and not allowing our feelings to manipulate the truth. Okay, we have to prioritize truth over feelings. God's word and God's character are true and they are unchanging. And if you and I are going to hope in God, we need to trust in the truth. Secondly, you and I, we need to preach to our soul. We need to preach to our soul. The psalmist says, why are you cast down? And why are you disquieted in me? He's having that internal conversation. His doubt is talking to him. 
okay? His circumstances are talking to him. And there are times when you and I need to stop listening to ourselves and we need to start talking to ourselves. We need to stop listening to that internal voice of doubt. And we need to start communicating some truth. We need to preach back to ourselves. You say, well, uh, believers on this side of the cross, we know the chief cause of our hope. Our hope is rooted in the cross of Jesus Christ and in the fact that he has triumphed over sin and death. It's focused on our glorification and on our future eternity with God. So then, what do you and I need to preach to ourselves? When we have that internal conversation of doubt, okay, when we are tempted to despair and being told of the guilt within, what do we teach ourselves? What do we preach to ourselves? Hold your spot in Psalm 42 and turn over to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Turn over to the book of Romans and chapter number 8. I love Romans 8. And if there is one passage of scripture that I would encourage you to memorize, and one passage of scripture that when you are struggling with the internal conversation of doubt, that I would encourage you to preach back to yourself, it would be this one. Okay, Romans chapter 8. We're going to pick it up in verse 28, and I'm going to read through the end of 39. I read, you follow, okay? And I'm going to encourage you and challenge you. If you're not familiar with this passage of scripture, if you haven't committed this one to memory, this would be a good one to commit. And when, when we have that internal conversation, when that doubt starts to creep in, we run back to this passage. Okay? In verse 28, it says this. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. If you are in Christ this morning, that's you, and that's good news. All right, look at verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Next question. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us. Who is going to separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Don't try to say that ten times fast. As it is written, he says, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, when you and I are having the internal conversation of doubt, we run back to the word and we preach the truth to ourselves. We remind ourselves of the reality of who we are in Christ. We remind us of the, ourselves of the fact that there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. We remind ourselves of the fact that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We remind ourselves of the fact that there is, one, there is coming a day when we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Okay, we've got to preach the truth to ourselves. Stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. Preach the truth. Okay, finally, we need to pursue, we need to pursue our God. We need to pursue our God. This is going back to verses 1 and 2. 
When he says, as the deer pants for the water, so panteth my soul for you, O God. He's thirsting for the living God. I think it's interesting in those verses that the psalmist is not primarily praying for escape from his enemies, and he's not primarily praying for relief from his circumstances. Now, those aren't bad things to pray for. And we see that the psalmist addresses those later in the text. But his chief desire, his first desire, what he wants the most is God himself. And this is really the, the chief end when we recalibrate our focus and when we reaffirm our hope in God. This is the end of it. We want to see God. We want to commune with God. And we want to be satisfied in admiring and adoring and exalting the Lord. Now, you and I have a tendency. And our tendency is that when we're hurting, and our tendency is that when we feel like God maybe isn't answering our prayer, our tendency is to pull away from God. But the Bible tells us, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. He will never leave us, and he will never forsake us. And in the moments of our pain, and in the moments of our struggle, and in the moments of our doubt, it's important for us to recalibrate our focus and to lean in to our relationship with God. We need to allow him to work in us and to help us to deepen our faith and to show himself to us and to remind us of his unchanging character. We need to pursue our God. So if I can leave you with three ways practically that you can do that, it would be those. Prioritize truth over your feelings. Preach to your own soul. Pursue your God. Lean into him. So at the start of the message, I told you about Horatio Spafford. And when we left him, he was on the deck of the ship where his four daughters had passed away. So as he stood there and looked down into that place, he pulled out a piece of paper and a pen, and he began to write. And he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, no trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. That's hope. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall be sent. Even so. It is well with my soul. This is what it means to hope in God. That's faith for the future. It's preaching the truth to ourselves. It's reaffirming the character and the sovereignty of God. Listen, I don't, I don't know your situation this morning, but I do know your God. Fight for faith in him. Passionately pursue him. Hope in God. Father, thank you.